Good evening. Um, I'd like to start by um, thanking uh, the Benjamin Meeker Visiting Professor Programme for um, bringing me here and hosting me. Uh, I'd like to thank um, especially Elspeth Van Vieren um, for making all of this possible. She's working with great vibrancy uh, and imagination and critical insight to give secrecy a more central place uh, in security research. And I thank uh, David Warren um, for coming here tonight and presenting his work on Orford Ness, the place that I'll be talking about um, as well. Uh, my research wouldn't have been possible without the grounds he has already uh, covered, in particular his archive of, of interviews with, with veterans. Um, just a little bit of context for the, my presentation. Um, the, 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 what I'm presenting tonight is, is one chapter from a book that I'm writing and uh, I go back and forth with the title. It's either the production of secrecy or the uses of secrecy. And we know that use is a form of production. Um, and the impetus from, for, for the book came from uh, a question, why is secrecy, um, and especially official or state secrecy, relatively marginal? within um, scholarship, uh, critical security studies, as well as political sociology. Um, if you look in uh, sort of handbooks and textbooks uh, of these growing areas, you rarely find, um, well, you'll never find a, a chapter devoted to secrecy. You know, there'll be chapter on, on, on security and concepts like citizenship and sovereignty, but, but rarely secrecy, sometimes not even uh, in the index. So Habermas, Jürgen Habermas wrote in Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere that he wanted to do an imminent critique of liberal democracy from the angle of one of its privileged categories, that of publicity. Now I think it's important to do something similar for secrecy, um, which is also just as much as publicity uh, constitutive of our power relations, our institutions, and following another great German social thinker, uh, Georg Simmel, our very subjectivities and individualities. I think secrecy is part of the weft, not only of authoritarian rule, but in different ways of liberal democracy. So that by ignoring it or downplaying it or simplifying it, we miss an important part in the fabrication of social and political order. I should say from the outset, though, that my book's not about exposing particular secrets. It's not a promise to reveal hidden truths. It's not like the countless books which promise to take you inside the CIA or behind the lines of a particular uh, counter-terrorism campaign. Instead, I'm interested in secrecy rather than any given secret. Uh, and more specifically, I'm interested in the very practices of secrecy, how you conceal things, what it means to reveal things, how secrecy shapes power relations, how it shapes identities, how it takes multiple forms. And I'll be talking especially about the multiple forms tonight. I think one of the obstacles and reasons why there's perhaps not more kind of critical work on, on secrecy, um, uh, state secrecy, is the problem of accessing the material, material that is in many cases being designed uh, with the limitation of access as its express intention. So I think researching secrecy requires a certain amount of imagination, versatility, and what the uh, anthropologist of American nuclear secrecy, Hugh Gustafson, has called polymorphous engagement. So I've set the book up as a sort of set of case studies, each designed to offer readers what I hope are some useful methods and lines of approach. And the one that I'm thinking about today is to think about approach secrecy from the angle of place, and that place is Orford Ness, and David's already uh, familiarised you to some extent with it. Um, 
there it is on the Suffolk coast. I grew up very near to it and, and, and listening to David talk, you know, I always thought as a kid growing up, oh, Suffolk's such a boring place. It's so backward and stuff like that. I want to live in a big city. Um, I had no idea, of course, you know, that the sort of cutting edge uh, kind of scientific and, and military research was being done, you know, 10 miles away from, from, from where I was living. Scary research as well, of course. This is a map of, the, of Britain's nuclear weapons production estate, of which Orford formed, as David explained, an important part of that, um, of that testing regime. So I want to give you, first of all, um, three factors uh, or three reasons that, that Orford makes a sort of very rich, fascinating case or place for sort of researching practices and meanings and dilemmas and paradoxes of secrecy. And the first is that it's a multi-layered place. You know, the, the uh, cultural historian Rachel Davis has called it a palimpsest. And so, you know, because of, precisely because of the kind of um, experiments and, and, and projects and, uh, and so on that David's described, you, know, you have many layers, many aspects uh, uh, on the same place, you know, piling up over sort of 70 years, and, and there are traces of all of these different uh, uh, projects. Um, the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment is interesting in so many ways, and just to build a little bit on what David is talking about, one of the things that really strikes me about it is it, it's also about um, scale. So, you know, in some ways what these uh, giant laboratories were doing was simulating, as David explained, the sort of geography that the bomb would face um, in, in, in travelling. And, and why was the bomb travelling in that way? One reason was because, unlike the Soviet Union, unlike the United States, Britain, small island, not, a, not, a, not, not, not the kind of room to actually explode uh, atomic bombs. Um, so Britain was using its kind of Commonwealth, its post-imperial uh, geography. And, 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 and these laboratories, in a sense, condensing and... and, 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 and simulating that global geography on the scale of a few miles. So I find that fascinating that, that, that in, a, in a sense, they were kind of like flight simulators for, for an emerging uh, nuclear fleet. And one of the things that comes out of engaging with these, these projects, these experiments, these technologies, is, is we can begin to think about the relationship between secrecy and materiality. You know, the, the, the American geographer Trevor Paglin makes this point that, you know, you can have a sort of top secret plane, but in as, you know, unless you really can uh, have ghosts, then that plane, you know, occupies time and space. There is a materiality to that plane, and if you want it to be secret, you have to kind of grapple with the materiality of that plane. So if we think about something like Cobra Mist, as top secret as it was, the fact that it's sort of generating such powerful electromagnetic waves meant that it kind of interfered with its environment, right? And how do you kind of keep secret something that interferes? So one of the ways it interfered uh, was that it, 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 there was the risk that it would um, mess up people's pacemakers, you know, people who were nearby on the beach perhaps, or it was interfering with um, the, the fishing traffic. So the, uh, the Ministry of Defence had to uh, elaborate cover stories. And in, in another paper that, that I've written with a former student of mine, we kind of do a sociology of cover storying. Because, you know, the cover story is a term we hear all the time. We think of it as, as, as self-explanatory, but it's not. 
generating a cover story is an incredibly difficult, complex activity. Uh, and so it's a, it's a particular practice of secrecy, if you like, that we've tried to examine at some length and, and sort of give it its due. The second thing that makes Orford uh, an interesting and useful case um, is precisely who runs it now, the, the National Trust. And I think that when it comes to doing secrecy research, gatekeepers matter, gatekeepers make a difference. Um, you, I don't need to introduce the National Trust, you all, you all know it, um, and get David's covered a, a, number of those, a number of those factors. Uh, I'd highlight the caveat emptor part there, that when the, when the trust and purchased this, and I think there was a controversy within the National Trust about it because they were sort of set up to deal with country homes and castles and, and, and not to move into this kind of area, a, 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 a sort of contemporary uh, history. But they were acquiring, acquiring something that they didn't, you know, it's not like they had the operator's manual. So much of the sort of uh, techno-scientific experimental work remains classified or lost or destroyed. And that's precisely why David's talking about, you know, this ongoing work of, of kind of excavating it partially through, an, uh, through a kind of archaeology to discover the kind of things that were being done. So the fact that there's still a lot of classification that surrounds both the activity on the island and the, uh, and the numbers of people who still feel themselves to be kind of covered by official secrets makes it a, 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 a very interesting place again. Because it's not as though, you know, okay, so it, it's no longer an active place, but it's not as though it stops being secret. There's this sort of powerful afterlife or this continuity to the secrecy here. So gatekeepers matter. I mean, I've also visited the Nevada uh, testing site in the US, which is still active in some ways, um, still run by the Department of Energy. And, and they offer a very restricted kind of tour. You have to apply many months in advance. You have to have security clearance. You hardly get off the bus at all, which is probably not a bad thing, given that they've exploded 800 uh, nuclear uh, weapons there. But it's, Orford Ness is the only place where you can sort of really tour a, a former a part, a part of the atomic weapons establishment. The third thing I want to sort of say about why this makes such an interesting and fascinating and lively case is the fact that it's undergone or it's subject to or it's at the crossroads of multiple, what I call multiple mediations. You know, many different kinds of actors have kind of converged on Orfordness and subjected to their own interpretations. And, and, and for someone like me who's sort of interested in the cultural meaning, the production of cultural meaning around secrecy, this is a very uh, 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 lively and, and important fact. So the, the, the storied uh, um, author W.G. Siebold is one of the first you know, writers to go to Orford before it's actually run by the National Trust. He just kind of goes there trespassing. Um, he writes um, about it how, um, you know, he says that from the, the, from the small town of Orford nearby, this place was no nearer than the, the Nevada test site or, or an atoll in the South Pacific. And I think that's a profound sort of observation because really it's sort of telling us the way that secrecy actually bends time and space. You know, it's, you, it, it's physically proximate, but in all sorts of other ways, it's not proximate at all. Um, 
conspiracy theorists and ufologists have been interested in it. And, and, and while we sort of often, dis especially scholars, we dismiss conspiracy theorists, uh, although we sort of bemoan the fact that some of them are in high, very high political positions. Um, nevertheless, and the conspiracy theorists have done, and, and, and ufologists have sort of filed a lot of freedom of information requests, and they've actually generated some sort of interesting material on, on, on Cobra myths. So they are sort of important actors, because they're also, if you think of them as, they're kind of churning stuff up, irrespective of what their particular ideas or motives or, or, or beliefs are. They still sort of contribute to this sort of vibrant scene, I would argue. Thirdly, a lot of other kinds of artists have worked there, you know, filmmakers, poets, painters, and in this particular case, the work of Louise Wilson, who explores sort of the sound of secrecy. She, she, one of the uh, parts of her project involved putting a, a choir into some of the laboratories and into, into one of the, um, the uh, centrifuges and sort of exploring its oral uh, properties, you know, because uh, she's playing, and, and, and we learn other aspects about secrecy through that kind of thing. She's sort of saying to us, well, sound and, 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 and words are, are so important to secrecy, this place. Secrecy wasn't managed simply by fences. It was about the fact that, you know, people had to be careful about what they said. It was about how disinformation and information traveled about how words and sounds moved. And so she's inviting us to think about secrecy in, in, in terms of a, a sonic, a, a soundscape, if you like, with her work. And then we also have the, the interest of journalists. And, and I put this, uh, this uh, story from the East Anglian Daily Times up because that's, in a way, that's the conventional the standard way of thinking about secrecy. You know, this headline, it says, BBC documentary, Britain's nuclear bomb, the inside story to reveal Orfordness's secret military history. So there's a sort of classic, the, 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 the everyday understanding of secrecy, that there is a secret out there, that it's hidden, we'd like to excavate it, we'd like to find out what it is. Whereas I'm sort of not so much interested in, in, in uncovering something secret, so much as that sort of belief that, that motivates people and, and, and the way that we understand reality to some extent through a lens or a, a discourse of secrecy. So I'm not going to belabor the theoretical uh, uh, sort of influences uh, in the project, but, but it, it, I, I'm sort of building on people who say rather than sort of thinking that there is a fixed real out there, that there is a, a singular truth, we should think of ontologies, we should think of being as something that's, that's, that's produced through different socio-material practices. And I build especially on the work of Anne-Marie Moll, who, who, who takes the example of arteriosclerosis. You know, she says that there is no single arteriosclerosis. What that disease is, is always relative to the technologies that you're using to diagnose and treat and, 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 and counsel the people. So there are multiple arteriosclerosis depending upon the angle of the technology that you approach it with. And I say something similar for secrecy. You know, there is no singular secrecy out there. There are these multiple socio-material practices, and if we follow some of these, we see we explore different productions of secrecy. So that's what I want to do in the, in the remainder of the talk, is to, sort of, oh, to take uh, three of these, three of these socio-material practices. And it's not an exhaustive list. And, you know, I've put up this report here because that's another way you could think about... Uh, 
the production and, and exploration of, of secrecy would be through archaeology, which is what this survey is really about. It's trying to understand some of the things that happened at Orford Ness by doing this sort of careful reading of the ruins, uh, looking for clues through the ruins. Instead, I'm going to look at managing. I'm going to look very briefly at memory work, referring to David's work with the veterans. And thirdly, I'm going to look at a, a slightly more quirky socio-material cultural practice, uh, place hacking. So managing to begin with. So here's a quote from a blog, and there are many kind of blogs and many places online where you find people who've, you know, they've gone to Warford, they've taken photographs, they're usually similar photos, it's a deserted, desolate place, they write about it as creepy, mysterious, enchanting, and, and I was like that too. That's kind of what drew me into do, do, doing research at Warford, I thought, you know, oh, I love this kind of desolate, erratic, mysterious place. So Mike from Bit About Britain says, it's not exactly beautiful, and the juxtaposition of crumbling, ugly, man-made structures with nature makes it seem as though the landscape has been somehow violated, yet it also has an alluring sense of mystery and wildness. It was only when I started to um, work through, you know, thanks to the uh, openness of the National Trust managers, they let me look through the archives at the plans that they'd put together both uh, to enable the purchase of the site and then to think about, well, how are we going to manage this place? How are we going to organise it? As I started to go through those planning documents, I found that fascinating. So in this uh, uh, little extract here, uh, the planners are saying, well, in this area, and they're talking about one particular region of the site, the feeling of mystery and secrecy which imbues much of Orfordness is evident. This area of mystery will perhaps be difficult to maintain as this area will be the hub for the management of the estate and the reception of visitors. So what are they saying there? Well, they're saying, you know, that if we put the, the offices for our operations in this particular place, it will kind of ruin this feeling of mystery and secrecy, which we think is such an important part of the character and the identity of the, that place. So we have... Here, secrecy becomes a value. You know, there's a sort of governmentality here. Because it's not as though it's the only value. It has to compete with other values. You know, they have to manage the site. They have to provide safety. They have to worry hugely about the environment, because that's a big part of the rationale for, for, for running the place in the first place. So this secrecy has become this value, this sort of quality of the place that they want to nurture and they want to foster. But they have to do that within a kind of matrix that plays off against these other imperatives and these other concerns. So what we see here is secrecy being cultivated as a kind of aesthetic experience. It's not secrecy as in, you know, there is a hidden truth here. It's an aesthetic experience. It's something that appeals to people. It's something that they consider as an important characteristic or part of the identity of place. So there's a particular production of secrecy going on within the management. And again, one can point to very material practices here. Like if I had a, a little laser, um, I would point to the, the ferry. So David already, already mentioned, to get on the site, you take a ferry. So the National Trust, you know, during its operational years, the ferry was an important way to manage access onto the site. Well, it's still the case. So the National Trust looks at the ferry as a way to limit the numbers of people at any one time that are on the island. Now, one reason they want to limit it is, again, out of environmental considerations. Another is safety, there's still unexploded ordnance. But a third, and they're quite explicit about this in the management documents, is 
If they have a thousand people in yellow cagoules all on the island at the same time crowded together like they do in a lot of the country houses, what happens to their aura of secrecy and mystery? It's kind of, you lose it. They, want, they say they want each person to be able to sort of feel this sort of desolation, to sort of feel a kind of sense of abandonment and mystery. And again, controlling the movement of people is important for that. Likewise, the pathways. They encourage you to stick to the pathways, again, partly because they don't want you to get blown up. But they've also kind of choreographed the pathways. They've landscaped it, a bit like, again, Rachel Davis talks about, uh, say, like uh, the gardens at Versailles. They've choreographed the paths so that the particular walks you take will give you a better vista, which again sort of emphasise the sort of the sublime nature of these ruins. So in all of these different ways, you could say a, a sort of feeling or experience of secrecy is being landscaped. You could call it a secret scape, perhaps. Secondly, in a very different way, uh, there's a production of secrecy that comes through the production of memory that I think David has been a sort of integral part of. You know, the fact that the veterans have sort of come back to the place, either kind of spontaneously or through these kinds of uh, public announcements and recruitments, uh, the fact that, that, that their memories have been gathered and, and, and transcribed and, 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 and collected allows a different kind of secrecy to sort of take place. And I would say it's a sort of, at the moment, it's a quasi-public memory, you know, quasi because the National Trust hasn't actually got round to for reasons that have never been clear to me. All along I said, oh, don't worry, these uh, recordings will, will be online and available to the public. But, you know, it took me a long time to, to get in touch with David and to actually access some of these recordings. I travelled all over the place trying to find them. So they exist in sort of quasi-public sphere, which is sort of in-between state, and it's not entirely clear uh, what their uh, end point will be. But one of the sort of things that comes out when, you, when I listen to the recordings, it's a very different sort of discussion or... Di feel or, 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 or sense of secrecy. Whereas in the first version, secrecy is a kind of aesthetic experience, it's a mood, it's a question of, of the identity of place. In the second version, secrecy comes across as, as, as part of an everyday experience. You know, so people talk in different ways about the, how they underwent security clearance or how it felt to be kind of checked. Uh, as they went on and off the island. And, and one woman said, yes, my bag was frequently checked, but, you know, I was never body searched. Uh, there were no female police, so I think that was one reason why I was perhaps never body searched. And so there were all sorts of telling ways in which you can see how gender and profession and status also shape experiences of secrecy. And I think a lot of times when people discuss uh, secrecy in the literature, they use metaphors like veil, and, and box and, 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 and shroud, which imply a kind of, you know, a blanket, a kind of us and them or inside and outside. And there's very little sort of reflection or, or space in that kind of, of vision to think about how, uh, how gender or status or profession shape uh, 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 experiences of, uh, of secrecy and vice versa. And a lot of the things that come out of the, 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 the interviews are quite quirky as well. So there's a sort of humorous uh, and sometimes often quite paradoxical observations about secrecy. So in this particular one, it's a very nice one. It says, I would guess it, was a, it comes from a, a guy who was a draftsman, a junior draftsman. I would guess it was early 1963. We were going to test the Polaris American missile here. 
The Americans turned up and were horrified to find that there was no security fence, right? So a security fence was very quickly put up. The civil engineer went out with contractors and put a post up there, a post up there, a fence in between. And I think altogether the fence was somewhere about eight miles long. And then they realised that on the site plan the security fence hadn't been put in. So we came into the security office, Mr Blank said to me, Blank, you're the youngest, out you go, measure up where the security fence is. So I love this sort of sense of a, 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 of a very top secret atomic weapons research place without a fence. And you know, the, the fence is being erected a bit like a garden fence. You're sort of hammering in, almost it sounds like you're hammering in these, these poles. So I think there's also, you know, the ways in which we can learn about perhaps different national cultures or organisational cultures of secrecy here. You know, the, 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 the way in which, and a lot of these projects, the, the United States people are working alongside the British and here is the Americans' attitude that you can't possibly have a secret place without a fence, so, so please uh, get one quickly. And we see that play out around these very material objects and practices, which I like. It, it grounds it. So the, the more quirky one is, is place hacking. So the very first time that, that uh, I went to Orford and sat down and, and, uh, and, and talked to the, to the senior manager, Grant Lahore, um, he told me you know, that last night or the, the evening before, we'd had a visit from a secret group um, called the Lurkers. Uh, and they'd, you know, they'd caught them just before they managed to uh, tag some of the, the concrete structures. And so I went home that evening and kind of looked up online the lurkers who I'd never heard of. And there is a, you know, there's, a, there's their website uh, that they kind of blog and they post every time that they visit a particular place. Um, and the American um, geographer Bradley Garrett talks about place hacking. Um, Garrett says, you know, there's a, and, and, and the, the, the geographer Luke Bennett talks about bunkerology. So place hacking is, is a sort of a, a, a increasingly common practice where people are sort of seeking out secret places such as, you know, a disused underground tunnel or an abandoned factory uh, or, or somewhere that's kind of prohibited or off limits. And, and, and you know, it's about breaking in, um, photographing it, um, perhaps documenting it, making it public. And, you know, one of the things that place hacking about is, is authenticity. It's about finding sort of real authentic places that are kind of off the map. It's also the kind of thrill of trespass and, and, and transgression. Um, so there's an element of this going on with the, with the lurkers, except there's a kind of paradox here, an irony in the sense that... Um, Orfordness isn't like a sort of underground tunnel network that nobody knows about. It's not sort of secret or forbidden in that way. In fact, it's open to the public for, th for, for three months of the year. So I think that the lurkers are sort of profaning, in a sense, or they're sort of highlighting in a certain way in which the trust, the National Trust, has asserted a kind of power over the space, just in, you know, in a way that's comparable in some ways to the way that the, 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 the military establishment took possession of the island. Uh, the, it reminds us that secrecy is a sort of also a territorializing act. It's about laying claim to a particular uh, space uh, or, or, or part of the earth. And the National Trust has carried that on in some ways. They've also let now lay, they are the authority that governs that space. And so the, 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 the lurkers are kind of 
transgressing that because as they say in this little quote, you know, there was no way that we were going to take the ferry over there. We're not going, it's not like a day trip to Edinburgh Castle with the kids. And plus we've got our buckets of paint and our booze and stuff like that. So, so it's a sort of transgressive practice for them. But I think they're sort of re-secretizing the place in other ways. And, and, and you know, the, 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 this sort of photoshopped face, which is more um, Ned Flanders from uh, 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 The Simpsons rather than Guy Fawkes or, or, or Anonymous. But, you know, the, the, this face is, is their kind of brand every time they visit a particular site. Uh, they use the same Photoshop face to an anonymize themselves, right? And, and it, it sort of raises for me, well, what is this anonymity? What is anonymizing as a practice? What's going on here? And I think that one of the things that's going on about anonymity is that it's, it's a way in which we use a particular form of secrecy as a condition of possibility for publicity, so in the standard view of things, you know, secrecy stands opposed to publicity. So lots of political scientists and political theorists, they worry about, well, you know, what's the right balance that needs to be struck in a particular policy area between secrecy and publicity? You know, how much is too much secrecy or how little can we have and, 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 and do things effectively? But I argue that actually in a lot of situations, it's not a sort of zero-sum game. It's not a question of, of how much of one versus the other. In this particular case of anonymity, a certain practice of secrecy becomes a condition of possibility for making something public. So their practice of, of anonymity here is a, is a way in which that it kind of allows them with a certain confidence to... to, to, to uh, to distribute and circulate this, this image uh, and this practice and this experience in, in, a, in a more widespread way. Now, to say that they're place hackers isn't entirely right, though, because you know, one of the things about a lot of the place hacking work of people like Bradley Garrett, who's, who's published a, a book on it, there's a kind of moral code with a lot of place hackers that you, you, know, you go into a place, but you don't destroy it or you don't wreck it. You kind of respect it. That's not the case with the lurkers. You know, they went into with, with the intent of, of tagging it. Um, all of which is to say that, you know, that these socio-material practices that I'm looking at, that I'm talking about, are not sort of fixed. They are quite dynamic. They're, there's a sort of hybridization going on here with the, ta with the, with the lurkers. It's, it's, so it's partly place hacking, but it's also partly graffiti work and, and, and vandalism. So... If I'm just to, to wrap up now, um, and, and I sort of launch this, this drone so that you get a, a sort of nice overhead um, uh, depiction or, or, or view of the island, let me just sort of sum up uh, in, in conclusion uh, sort of three points that I sort of draw out of, uh, of this work. The first is that I'm interested in, in moving from a kind of thinking about secrecy in some terms of some sort of general theory, you know, of the sort that I just uh, uh, hinted at, where we sort of worry about the, what is the right balance between secrecy and publicity, as though they were kind of quantities almost. Uh, I want to move from that to a more situated account that, again, looks at different socio-material practices and looks at how secrecy is produced within those different practices, within those uh, networks and, and so on, and, and recognises that it can mean very different things. So for the, in, the, in the case of the trust with that managerial practice, 
It's a sort of identity, it's an experience, it's a feeling that's being cultivated through a particular landscaping and a particular organisation of, of bodies within space. The second point that I'm drawing out, that these socio-material practices are not fixed. It's not like there's a finite number of them in the world. It's a question of identifying them when and as they emerge and, and, and they're dynamic. So to take the example of, of, of place hacking, you know, place hacking is a growing cultural phenomenon. It's also being mainstream. You know, I'd, I'd point out the fact that, that Michael Portillo... Um, you know, I think he had a, a TV series of Secret Britain or Underground Britain or something like that, where he becomes a kind of place hacker. And obviously not a, a, in a highly transgressive way, because it's all negotiated. But it's that, so he's sort of picking up on that vibe that, oh, isn't it fascinating to go and visit hidden or forbidden or off the track or kind of mysterious kind of places and kind of explore them. So there's a kind of mainstreaming of place hacking going on. And, and that's but in the, in the case of the lurkers, it's not, they're not simply reproducing something called place hacking. They're coming up with their own version of it that combines it with a bit of boozing and a bit of vandalism and a bit of graffiti. And, you know, they're profaning as well. They're profaning something that has been sacralised in a certain way by the National Trust and by a lot of these other bloggers. I mean, because after all, their photos are nothing like the photos that most people take. Most people take the photograph, you know, it's, it's desolate, it's abandoned, it's mysterious, it's weird. And then, whereas the, the, the lurkers are sort of, uh, here I am, it's like I'm on, on my sort of tour of, of, of Spain, I'm on my holidays and here I am boozing in front of a, a, an atomic weapons research uh, site. And then thirdly, I think the, the thing that I've wanted to get across is that a focus on place allows one to think about the co-presence of these multiple secrecies. So rather than, than, than thinking, you know, like that, that, that East Anglian Daily Times headline that there is a secret or a hidden truth there that has to be sort of uncovered, we should have attuned ourselves to the sort of multiple play of the different secrecies and the different moods uh, that are produced by the different practices around a given place. So that's it. Uh, uh, that's... Uh, that's my uh, presentation, and uh, thank you for listening, and, and look forward to, to, to questions.